0: My name is Pastor Dennis Tollison. If you don't know who I am, I'm the pastor of administration and global missions. And so basically what that means is if you have a complaint about how hot it is, how cold it is, how clean or dirty it is, how unsafe it is, um, all those kind of things, that's my department. Um, It's what I do. And so I'm here this morning because I love this church. I love this church family. I love you guys. And so this morning, I want to come and deliver a message that is very foundational, but it's very important to know who we are. I don't know if you know or not. I've tried to tell everybody I can, but um, I had a new grandchild, a new granddaughter just recently. And see how? If I'd have been a little bit more on time, I'd have had a picture up here. I got a whole phone full of pictures. And she is just sweet as can be. But holding that little girl, It just made me so thankful to God for what humans are and so thankful to God to what she is. You know, as a human, we have so many things that God has given us as we're in his image. We have the astonishing capacity to be able to see and hear and feel. We have the ability to think about all the things. The amazing reality of who God is, who we are, what our culture is. God has given us that unique ability as humans. And I know my little granddaughter someday will have all that fully active. She'll question who she is. Why am I here? As we often question those deep questions. She'll be able to form judgments about what is right and wrong. And I hope she always chooses what is right. She'll be able to decide on her own what those things are. She'll understand beauty. She'll understand the ugly side of life, too. And I wish I could keep that from her, but that's a part of it. As humans, we get to choose what we decide to do, what we decide to believe, and who we're going to follow. But we get to have discouragement, but encouragement. We have downtimes, but we have uptimes. And most of those are by our choice or how we deal with circumstances. And as I sat there and held my little granddaughter, I thought about all these things that she will have to come in contact with as she grows up. Because God, her Savior, her Maker, the miracle worker that she's even here, will be her God. But she has to choose that, she'll have to make that decision. And I just kind of deeply contemplated when I was holding this little bitty thing, born five weeks early, but healthy, everything's there. Little bitty fingernails, toenails, little bitty fingers. Every little knuckle is there, but tiny. Just contemplated the humanness of humans. What has God done here? Why is he mindful of us? Why is he in love with this little baby girl? Why has he even called her before her being formed in her mom's tummy, and called her to be his. There's another life change that my wife Sandra and I have been going through. We have, been, we have bought a farm. You know, sometimes that's an expression for dying. We didn't die. We're not buying the farm. We didn't buy the farm. But we bought a farm. For a couple of years, we've been thinking about that. We moved to Allen at one time, and we were in the country. And country's not even close to us anymore. Country's 30 minutes in any direction. So we bought a farm out near Farmersville. I know that's kind of ironic. But um, when you pass over Lake Levon on 380, you actually hit country. I don't know if you've ever driven east on 380. You just go city after city after city, and then you hit Lake Levon, and then the country opens up. And so we're just about two miles on the other side of Farmersville. Once we get it all ready and we're going to have the church out, you'd be welcome to come out and enjoy this relaxing place we have. But on that farm will be animals. And unlike my granddaughter, who has all these things she will contemplate, those animals will contemplate nothing. Now, I know some of you say, well, they have amazing affections. They have amazing loyalty. And they do. They, they somehow sense those things, but they're instinctful for what God has done for them. My cattle will never sit back and judge another cow and say, you look a little fat. Right? Yeah, it won't happen. I'll be saying, yes, we want them to be fat. The sheep we have, they'll never sit back and call each other names. Or they'll put each other out. Now, there's a pecking order in animals, but it's the survival of the fittest. It's the instincts God's given them. They don't sit and wonder about a beautiful sunset and say, who made that? How does that happen? But we do as humans. We wonder those things. My chickens are never going to think about why they're here. They're just going to lay eggs and do chickeny things, whatever all those are. They're going to be chickens, right? But my granddaughter has a life ahead of her where she will choose, contemplate deep things of God to figure out what's going to happen in front of her. So this morning, as we look at our Bible text, we're going to kind of think about that. What are those deep questions in life? If I said, what's the deepest thing you've ever thought about? You'd probably say, well, why am I here? And what is my purpose? Right? Those are kind of the deep questions. And most of you have wrestled with those already. But I'm going to look in two short scriptures this morning and give us why we're here and what we're here for. John Piper, one of my favorite authors, expresses it this way. He says, To be alive as a human being with indescribable mysteries at every turn and to have in front of us either an eternal destiny, as we see here in this passage in a minute, an eternal destiny of spectacular glory or an eternal destiny of inexpressible horror, is a weight that can either press you down with fear and trembling or bear you up with unspeakable joy and full of glory and praise to God. That's the outcome of man. You either have heaven or you have hell. That's it. There is no other option when we end this world. The Bible gives us no other option. It either says we're under grace in the kingdom of God or we're under wrath and not in the kingdom of God. So as John Piper says here, I like that, that we all have an eternal destiny of either spectacular glory in Christ or inexpressible horror without Christ. That's what makes me a pastor. I don't want people to experience inexpressible horror. It's their choice. God has created heaven for us. He has created that spectacular glory for people if we choose so. So this morning, in large measure, however you feel about those things, you're either fear and trembling or, as we're about to look at here in Peter, says you have an unspeakable joy full of glory and praise to God. How you feel this morning is really how you answer those two questions we're going to talk about. Who we are and why are we here. Deep questions that my little granddaughter will ponder someday. And how you answer those questions and how you fulfill those questions is why people take their own life at times or why they take another life because they've answered those questions wrongly and they've answered them poorly. Not often in Scripture, when you're looking looking through Scripture, do you find the answers to those two greatest questions so simply and obviously as we will in this passage we're about to read this morning. As you know, we have been in a a series about building your team. And so this morning we're going to talk about every team needs a leader, They need a good leader who knows who they are and what they're here for. Have you ever followed a leader that didn't have a clue what they were doing? Yeah, they're not a leader for long, right? But you get it real quick. If you've ever done any construction work, it's real easy to tell whether the the boss, the leader, actually knows what he's doing. It's pretty quick. Because if the house doesn't stand, it's pretty easy to say that leader didn't know what he was doing. And it's hard to follow a leader who doesn't know where he's going. Sometimes I've been that kind of leader. People are like, where are we going? I'm like, I don't know. I'm lost. Let's just wander around until we find it. Um, That's what the Hebrew people did, right? They got to wander around 40 years because they wouldn't follow God. But as we're building our team, you need a good leader who knows who he is, who she is, and where they are going and what is the purpose of our team. So with that being said, let's jump into the scripture this morning. We're going to look at two scriptures, 1 Peter 2 and 9 and 10. So you're not going to have to move around the Bible very much, and they'll be up here in a minute. But 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this. A little background before we jump into Scripture. The background is, it's going to say, but at the very beginning of this passage. That's because of something that came before that. And the first part of this um, chapter basically says that Jesus is a great stumbling block that people trip over, that they stumble over because they cannot decide who he is and what they want him to do in their life. So then it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then the rest of Peter goes on to tell you what does it look like to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So let's jump right into it. Question number one, who are you? We're going to unpack these two scriptures. So um, before we jump into number one, we've got to look at a little background. Who is this passage to? Who do you think this passage is to? Christians. It's written to Christians. It's not written to those who have already stumbled over the stumbling block, Jesus. It's written to those who have received Christ. So those things of who you are here is specifically to those who are Christ followers, those who are Christians. So this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're still struggling with that decision, if you're still trying to figure out who is Jesus and what you want him to do in your life, Jesus asks that question a lot. What do you want me to do for you? If you're wondering that this morning, then it's real simple. You can end that right now and know exactly what God wants for you. The Bible's clear. It says that you believe in your heart everything that Jesus did to pay the eternal consequences for your sin. He died on the cross. He he took all of that penalty and died on the cross. And then the Bible says he was raised from the dead to buy us a brand new life. A life that's clean, forgiven, a life that has purpose, and then ultimately a life that will end up in heaven for all of eternity. And the Bible says you believe all that in your heart and then you say with your mouth, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want to commit, I want to surrender the rest of my life to you to be whatever you had for me. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. And then what we're talking about is what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? Who are you in Christ? So number one, You are a chosen race. Verse 9 says that you are a chosen race. I know this is a corporate identity. You are a chosen race. He's talking about the big C, the church as a whole. You are a chosen race, the true Israel. But the implication is individual as well, because every group, the church, is made up of individuals. It's not a race. It's not racial. The chosen race is not black or white or red or yellow or brown. The chosen race is a new people from all the peoples. Every nation, every tongue, and every tribe are the chosen race. All colors, all cultures, who are now in this Bible land. Verse 11, we're not going go to go into that, but it says, Beloved, now I urge you as aliens and strangers. This is of the world, out of grace, under wrath. This is alien and strangers to the world because they're under grace. This is those who have found Christ. They are a chosen race. It's what gives us our identity. It's not color or culture, but it's chosenness. To be in Christ is to be chosen. christians are not the white race, the black race, the brown race. It's not a race. It's a chosen race. Out from all the races, Christians have been chosen by God. One at a time, not on the basis of belonging to any group, but on the basis of belonging to Jesus. It's what gives us our identity. It's an amazing phrase that's crucial to us that we're a chosen race. Because the race is made up of each one of us that have been chosen. Not on qualifications. It says, even before you were born, you were chosen. We did not earn it. It's not merited. Therefore, we cannot lose it. If I earned it, then I could unearn it. If I did it out of merit, I could be unmerited, if that's a word. But it's none of that. It's given to us. We're chosen based on God's call alone. It happened before I was born, and now I just stand in awe of it. I'm chosen. You're chosen. And we just accept it as a believer. I want to be faithful to that call now and to be a chosen one and do what God's called me to do. We all want to be chosen You remember in middle school, grade school, when teachers own knowingly, they would always pick the brightest, the best, the strongest at that age, and they'd say, okay, you come up here, we all know you're a great speller, and you're a great speller, and you choose teams. Did you ever do that? And you know, everybody knows if you're a good speller or not. So they start, you know, with the A students and the B students, and if, if you're not a great speller, then you're like chosen at the end of the team. And you're hoping, oh please don't give me a word, please just don't get just win before I get there. You don't like to be chosen like that. However, if you think you're pretty good, and then you don't get chosen, it becomes a pride issue. Now, I remember basketball teams; it would always be the two guys who had like grown up real quick. You know, they already got a beard in eighth grade. They're already strong, and it just happened to them. And so they they get to choose teams. And you're like, oh man, please choose me, please choose me, please choose me. And you're sitting there waiting to be chosen. You want to be chosen, don't you? It's in us. And in Christ, we are chosen. Not because we're big, beautiful, strong, wealthy. We're chosen because God loved us and chose us. Based on nothing. You don't have to be a good speller. You don't even have to be strong. God can choose you. And He uses that. So we're chosen. We like to be chosen. I love to be chosen. Number two, we're chosen... And then the second part of verse 10 says, you have not received mercy, but now you received mercy. So out of grace, in wrath, you've not received mercy. But over here, in grace, you've received mercy. Now, it's really an active verb there, and really the best word I've chosen is pitied. Because mercied is not a word, although it should be. But our English translation there would really be pitied, that you are pitied. Now, we think, well, I don't want to be pitied. Well, if you're talking about getting rid of my sin, my condemnation, my things I've done against God, then I want to be pitied, and I want mercy. So it says we are pitied and shown mercy because of God's great kindness to us. Nothing we've done to earn that. We are objects of his mercy. I am chosen. I am pitied. And the band's going to come up here in a minute. I've asked them to play a song that really get these two points. But you could say, I am graced or I am loved. God did not choose me and then stand aloof. No, he chose me and drew drew near to me in mercy to help me and to save me. I have been shown mercy. I am a mercy person. I'm not forsaken. God is there at all times. He loves me and will never leave me. Romans 5.8 says it this way. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You had done nothing to deserve being chosen or being shown mercy. But Christ died for you. You are a child of God. Not because you say so, but because God said so. That's such a great feeling to think about. I am who I am because God made it that way. I'm chosen. I've been shown mercy. I've been been pitied. Leads to point three. Because of God's great mercy, because of his choosing, then that effect of that is that we're now his own possession. You are God's possession. Verse 9 says, You are a people for God's own possession. First part of verse 10 says, You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You're his possession. So I've written in your notes. So, in one sense, everyone is God's possession. That is true. But in this sense, you're special. There's something special about this possessing that God does. You are special by God. You're chosen by Him. You're given mercy and you become His his possession. You're God's inheritance. Romans says that you're adopted into God's family from the very beginning. It was His purpose. It was His plan to adopt you in. 2 Corinthians 6 says, I will be their God and they will be my people, my possession. I will dwell with them and walk among them. Isn't that great feeling that you are a child of God and it's always been his purpose? You belong to him and he belongs to you. You are chosen. You've been shown mercy. You're his possession. And number four, you are holy. You are holy. Verse 9 says it just straight out: you're a holy nation. You've been chosen by God to be holy. You're set apart for God. You exist for God. You belong to Him, and He belongs to you. God is holy, so we are holy. His kingdom is holy, so those in His kingdom have the character of being holy. It's who you are. When He chose you, and He gave you mercy, and He redeemed you, became His possession, you became holy. Now, I know you don't always feel holy, and I know you don't always act holy, But God still sees you as holy. I love the image that Christ is on the cross and I'm hiding behind the cross. That's my hope, that the cross has covered all my sin and that now I can step back and be seen by God because of what Christ has done for me. And now God sees me as holy. I don't always act holy and I get it. I sense that in the very core of I am. It feels bad to do something wrong. We know that. We see that in a little two-year-old. It's because God has imprinted on his heart. He comes out with cookies on his mouth. And you say, did you get into the cookies? What does he say? Wasn't me. And you're like, are you kidding me? You have chocolate chips on your lips, son. Look at me. I know you did it. it. Wasn't me. Oh, but we get that. He knows, but he still tries to get away with it. I do that at my age today. God, it wasn't me. He's like, um, there's nobody else around. You might want to change your story because I saw you. I was with you, I know, but God sees me as holy through Christ. Jesus made you and me holy on the cross. The Bible has a kind of a play of words It says that the righteous Jesus gave his life for the unrighteous, you and me, so that the unrighteous would be made righteous through Christ. So it's like he pulls this righteous robe around us that covers all of our past. The past is forgiven and done away with. Now, we remember it because if we don't remember, we will repeat it. So God makes sure we don't forget so that we don't repeat. And the greater the pain of that wrong, the longer the memory. A kid only burns his hand on a stove once. If they're a little dense, maybe two or three times. But it's a hard pain and you remember it. Well, that's the way we are as adults. We don't often remember something unless the pain was great. And how many people we hurt by our sin? But God sees us as holy because he sees us through Jesus. It was one and done. The unjust us, the just Jesus, one and done covered us. Past, present, and future. God sees us as finished, but he's still trying to get us there. That's why we see in Romans 8, it says that all these things happen to us to make us like Christ. Because his goal is to be holy as Christ is holy. So number five, who you are. You are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. This is deep and significant in God's kingdom. A priest is like the general, a special rank in favor by God. And it says you are a royal priesthood. You're chosen by God, you're pitied by God, you're possessed by God, and you're holy like God to be royal priest of God. What does it mean? First, to be a priest is that you have immediate access to God. You don't need another human priest to come alongside of you. Your prayers are effectual because you are a priest. You may not feel like it, but you're a priest because Jesus said you were and made you, not because you feel like it. That's a great thing. If it depended on our feelings, they'd be all over the place, like a roller coaster. But Jesus said it, and we have to believe it. But it says that we are priests. You don't need another human to be your priest or mediator. God himself provided that one mediator between him and us, Jesus, that now makes us a priesthood, a royal priest. God himself provided it, and so we now have direct access to God through Jesus. It doesn't have to be earned or merited because Jesus already did it. Secondly, because we're a priest, you have an exalted, active role in God's kingdom. Did you realize that? As a priest, you don't only have great access and privilege... You also have great responsibility as a priest. You're called to do priestly things. And we'll talk about those in a minute. But you're never out of God's presence. He's always with you. So you're never a priest on your own. God's presence is always with you through the Holy Spirit. It's never a neutral zone. You're always in the court of the temple. Special place, special table, special calling as a child of the king. In the Old Testament, we see people going to the temple. But in the New Testament, we are the temple, and now the temple goes to the people. It's totally different. We are God's temple. We are His priests, and now we go to the people instead of the people coming to the temple. So it's that identity. Romans 12.1 says that this is your reasonable act of service in your priestly duties, is to do what God's called you to do, the character He's given you. So if our identity is who are you, is your identity, and you are chosen You are pitied, mercy, given mercy. You are God's possession. You are holy and you're a royal priest. If that's our identity, then every identity has a destiny. So what is our destiny? What has Christ called us to do? Well, before we get there, let's answer a middle question to make sure it's blatantly obvious. Who gave us that identity? How did I get that identity? It's pretty obvious, right? I spent about 10 minutes covering that. Who gave us that identity? Say it again. Who gave us that identity? That's right. And that's very important to know because the accuser is going to tell you as soon as you leave out of here, I didn't include you. I didn't include you because you know what you did. Remember what you did when you were 14? You're like, please, I'm 62 now, shut up. <laughs> but the accuser still accuses, right? Like Who even remembers what I did at 14? Oh, that's right. Satan plays that tape over and over and over. So I remember it. But we are called to a destiny. And it's important you know that God has given you that identity. It's your relationship with him. You're chosen by God. And if God chooses you, it, it, he's chosen you. You're mercied and pitied by God. You're possessed by God. You're set apart to be holy by God. And then you're invested into as a royal priest by God. It's all God's doing. You just receive it and accept it and believe it's true and then act those things out as the Holy Spirit leads you. The summary statement in the end of verse 9, God says it this way. Peter says it this way about God. Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is the light we now live in, this marvelous light that is all that Jesus is this excellency this passage talks about, as we're chosen and possessed and holy, all this together is the light that shines out of us. He's called us out of this darkness, wrath area, into this marvelous light of being part of God's kingdom. So the answer is, I know it's redundant, but how do we get this identity? God gave it to us. I want that to be a bedrock. That foundation is who you are is given by God. It's not dictated by your spouse, by your kids, by your best friend, your worst friend. It's not dictated by Pastor George. Who you are is dictated by who gave you that, and that's God. God makes all the rules about your identity, and he gave it to us. And what can separate us from that love? Rob talked about it in the the, um, music earlier. Nothing. Romans 8 just goes around and around about how nothing in this world or any world to come can separate us from the love of God. God's calling and choosing you and giving you all that is through his love. So what are you here for? Let's answer that question. Our identity is who God's made us. Our destiny is what has God called us to. So that leads right directly to that destiny of being chosen. We're pitied. We're possessed. We're holy. And we're a royal priesthood. So the second part of verse 9 tells us this. We exist for this reason, that you may proclaim. What is proclaimed? Proclaim visibly demonstrate actively say by deed and by word so you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light we call that evangelism but it's a little more scary because evangelism sounds like uh-oh i'm going to have to go knock on a door and explain everything and all those kind of things no evangelism is simply proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light To make the glories known of the King. So I know in our current world, we're in an identity crisis, aren't we? We're just in this identity crisis about who am I? Who do people say I am? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Am I old? Am I young? What's the new old? What's the new young? It's just a confusing world we live in right now. And we're letting identity be identified by whatever someone thinks. And and it just changes. I've only been alive 50 plus years um, on this earth, but that identity has just changed all over the place of who is in and who is out. But God's identity never changes. It never changes because it's in divine in terms of what He does for us, His relationship He creates with us, and the destiny He gives us. That has never changed from the beginning of time. God is who He is, and that identity never changes. So I want to make sure we understand this is God's biblical view of who you are, regardless of what our culture of the moment says. It's God's identity of who you are. You're chosen by God. You're mercied by God. You're possessed by God. You're sanctified as the one God's chosen. The very language of our identity says, well, now what do I do? If God's made me all that, what am I supposed to do? And he says that here is to proclaim the excellencies of god so what are the excellencies let's look at those a little deeper the first one is in his choosing us is the excellency of freedom the freedom that god has to choose under nobody else's direction and the freedom we receive when we're chosen free from sin free from wondering what am i and who i am it's a freedom we proclaim that excellence in christ there is freedom to be able to do what he's called you to do We proclaim the excellency of His grace when He gives us mercy. God gives us grace, and we can tell people about that grace. Everybody wants to have their past forgiven. People spend thousands and thousands of dollars with counselors trying to get forgiveness of sin. The only place you get forgiveness of sin is in Christ for all of eternity. We speak about the excellencies of Christ in showing us His authority and power when He possesses us. It's great to serve a king that I truly believe is the creator of all. I can't imagine serving a king that I thought really couldn't create anything from nothing. Why would I pray for miracles if I don't believe he can truly make something out of nothing? But we know the power that God has to truly change someone's life, to change their very physical being. And then we can proclaim the excellence of his worth, his purity, by making us holy. Those are all the things you can proclaim to others, to each other. That's what we brag about, we proclaim, we testify about what God has done done to us. He has given us our identity in order that his destiny for us would be proclaimed through us. It's why you have those great things of who you are, is so that you can show and tell others who God is when they see you. God has given all that to you, made you all those things so that others could see that as you proclaim them. There is no plan B in God's kingdom. Do you know that? God has no backup plan. The Bible's pretty clear that unless we proclaim the excellencies of his worth, unless we tell others about Jesus, that there will no, that story will not be told. That is there is no plan B. It's through us, his followers, and he's given us everything that we need to be that. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Do you get that? God has made you who you are, all those five things of your identity, so that you could make known to others who he is. Because a lot of people have a hard time seeing God, but they see you. They see what you do. They see how you act. They see how you react. They see those. And in that, they see the excellencies of God in you. They see your calmness when others aren't calm. They they see your confidence when you get a diagnosis of cancer. It's like, my God's got this either in this world or the one to come, my God has this. That's the confidence. That's showing forth His excellence. Being a Christian is making God's greatness known. He's the famous one. We just need to make that known. The Holy Spirit does the rest. Let me give you some quick ways how you do that. Here in the church, we can show those excellencies in church service with preaching, with singing, with loving on one another with working back with kids, with students, greeting, ushering, welcoming people. We give those excellencies by being here and showing people we love the body of Christ. Two, we can do it in our small groups as we show those excellencies of Christ to each other about what God has been to us and what He's done for us, what He needs to be for us and what we need Him to do for us. We're proclaiming those excellencies of Christ in that belief with one another. When we give one another mercy and grace instead of what we deserve, we're proclaiming those excellencies of Christ, the one who's called us into that marvelous light. When we're at work, when we're at school, we're telling people about the love that we have for God and the love we feel for Him. We're telling others about the confidence we have in who Christ has made us in a world that has no confidence. The world we live in right now is full of fear and trembling because they don't know what the future brings. And no matter how old you are or how long you've lived, you realize there are a lot of things you can't control. And outside of Christ, it brings fear and trembling. So we proclaim His excellencies when we tell people about what Christ does for us. We declare them in hundreds of other ways when we don't even realize it. When we're talking to people, when we're showing them what God's done for us, we're proclaiming His excellencies. It's by deed and by word. God wants us to proclaim those. Matter of fact, the Bible says that when you're proclaiming the excellencies of his worth, outside, verbally, or indeed, that God's with you in a special way. I don't know what that means, but it seems to say there's more power, more protection, more whatever the Bible word means, unction upon you, anointing upon you, when you're proclaiming his excellencies. Because you know you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. It makes you nervous but it feels good. You know you're doing the right thing. You're giving people the only hope that this world has, and that's Jesus and the church, the big C. Let me close this morning by telling you a story about one of our pastor partners over in the Philippines. His life story is a perfect example of someone who chose to believe this two verses here, chose to believe what it says here in verse 9 and 10, and enacted it out. His name is Pastor Bernard Maggot. Pastor Bernard, we met him about in the middle of his journey, but I'm going to start you in the beginning. He just was an average Filipino kid, got into a lot of mischief, he says, growing up, didn't believe in Christ, had a a rudimentary Catholic um, theology that he says was intertwined with lots of ancestral worship, and so it was all confusing to him. He didn't get it. But Pastor Bernard, like a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers, young men, young women in the Philippines. Went to be a foreign worker. Now, of all places, he went into a, a rough shipyard in Saudi Arabia. While he was in Saudi Arabia Arabia, he was invited to go to a Bible study in an underground church. He thought, eh, you know, something underground, it sounds kind of dangerous, it sounds kind of awesome. And so he went. Yeah. <laughs> so in that setting, he found Christ simply by somebody proclaiming the excellency. He says, the guy that invited him. He watched him in the shipyard. He watched when a lot of other people were cursing and mad and frustrated, that this, this young man was pretty happy. He was something about life he would figured out. Even in that shipyard, he found happiness. And there was just something about him. Well, he was proclaiming the excellencies of Christ by living them out, and that drew Pastor Bernard to go to this Bible study. So he went to the Bible study. He found Christ and began to change his life. Fast forward a little bit later, he goes back to the Philippines, and he's figuring this out, and he's, he's proclaiming the exodus of Christ wherever he goes and whatever group's in. He's helping people out, and he finally says that a few people came to Christ. So there were about five or six of them, and they're wondering, what do we do now? So they um, went to another pastor that had started a church, and he said, well, start a church. And he said, well, we really can't get to your church because it's too far away. And he said, well, just start one in your house. So that's what Pastor Bernard did. He said, I was never called to be a pastor, but I thought, you know, there's six of us together. Um, I can surely do what they did in the underground church in Saudi Arabia. And so he just started church in his house. So about two-thirds of his small home he lived in, and one-third of his small home he started a small church. And then as God continued to bless him, more and more people joined the church. That's kind of when we got to know Pastor Bernard. And um, we went in there with a few things about, you know, what you can do in a church, how you lead your church, how you disciple your church, kind of brought in a purpose-driven church model to help him understand how to take people from being away from God all the way to fully functioning followers of his. And so he began to disciple others and grow them up and teach them how to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the neighbors around them and do it not only in word but in deed also. And before long, fast forward to now, There are 12 churches that Pastor Bernard has started in the Philippines that reach hundreds of people every week simply through proclaiming the exodus of Christ and believing that who God made them to be is who they are. And we have the the joy of being a part with them and being them. And actually, um, their church, they loved our branding so much and didn't want to recreate it, so they just took our branding and now they're LifePoint Churches. So we actually have 12 LifePoint churches in the Philippines. Yes, praise God. For two reasons. That, that we as a church proclaim the excellency of Christ around the world and here. And that Pastor Bernard heard the, the excellencies of Christ proclaimed. And then turned around and proclaimed those to his family and to his neighbors. So that's who we are. And that's what our destiny is. It's that simple. Church, that's all there is to it. You living who God has made you to be, and then telling people about the excellencies of our God. About those five things that God has done for you and made you. He's chosen you. Think about that for a minute. God has chosen you. Not on the basis of anything you've done, but you're chosen. God's chosen you, you're picked. The Bible says you're the apple of God's eye. How does that work? I don't know because he says that about me too. But (laughs) we're chosen. It feels good. You are chosen. No matter what anybody says about you, you you're chosen. And Jesus loved you so much that he went to the cross to move you from wrath unto grace. How much God loved you. He sent his own son to pay the eternal consequences of your sins. He made you holy. Regardless of what you think about yourself, our Father in heaven sees us as holy. God sees you as beautiful, perfect, without any blemish. Can you imagine that? The King of kings, the only one who will ever judge you, has already judged you perfect. So what does it matter what somebody thinks about you? The one who will ultimately judge you says "Perfect, you're my child. I chose you, I possessed you. I see you as holy. and now I make you a priest of the highest order. Now Jesus is our high priest, but you're tops in God's kingdom. You're a priest. Think about it. That's how worthy you are. That's how good God sees you as. So no matter what you else you hear today, believe. Choose to believe that God loves you, chose you, sees you as holy, and as a priest. And if He called you to be a priest and He called you to do things, He's going to make them complete in you. God finishes what He starts, and you're one of those. And now all He's asked us to do in return is to tell people, proclaim about the excellencies of who our God is. He does the rest. You and I don't have to save anybody. We just proclaim the excellencies of God through Christ, and He does the rest. That's it. Thank you, church. You are a great church. Let me tell you, um, God's given me the, the, the grace to be able to go all over the world to represent us in missions, and you are a great church. You truly are. You, you give and serve people all over the world through what we do in missions. You truly are chosen, and you are a delight to God. You're a delight to me. You're loved. Know that. No matter what you think of yourself, God says you are loved and you are chosen. And you are holy and perfected. Let's pray. Abba Father, thank you for those words that you have given us. Thank you so much that you chose us. Oh, and God, you didn't leave us there, but you felt sorry for us and gave us mercy and brought us into your very own family. And God, you've promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that we're yours in your righteous right hand and no one can take us out. You've promised that nothing can separate us from your love, that we're your children. God, it feels good. Help this congregation, this church family, to know what that is. God, help us to know at the very core of who we are that we are yours. We're chosen and we're holy in your eyes. God, don't let the accuser accuse this group of anything different when they leave here. We may not like who we are. We might not like what we've done. But you love us and you have made us perfect. God, now help us to live that responsibility out of proclaiming your excellencies to all those that we come come across here and abroad. God, it's all about you. We want to live for you and believe who you've made us to be. So God, give give us that in the very core. Gift us with that belief that you are ours and we are yours and you've done all it takes to make us that way. God, help us to feel solid about our relationship with you. It's all about you, God. We want it to be for your glory and your honor and your praise. May we be the people you've called us to be, God. You've told us we are. Now may we be that. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.